Every semester when we begin everyday evangelism here at Bethel, in the very first lesson we teach on the role of the church in effective evangelism. It really takes the whole church to do the work of God in any community that a church is in. And we teach that a church must be at least three things to be effective. Uh, Number one, a church needs to be a healthy body. An unhealthy congregation is a bad incubator for new Christians. Uh, Secondly, we need to be a united family. Uh, A divided church is the devil's workshop. And a church like that will only ruin new Christians. And then finally, a church needs to be united around the great commission of sharing the gospel. A church without a mission will soon become a mission field. And if you've ever seen a church like that, you know how sad that is when it happens. Now, Bethel is not a perfect church. If we ever do become a perfect church, you will have to fire me. So please do not become too perfect or I will no longer be able to be here, all right? But I want to say this morning, praise the Lord, because we have many healthy Christians in this church who can help new believers. The Lord has also been very, very gracious to us. He has blessed us with a measure of unity in the Spirit of God. And then um, we are so thankful also that we have many Christians whose passion is the Great Commission, and we try to obey the Great Commission. Now today, we are going to look at that second element in the role of the church. We're going to look at what it means to be a united church family. We are coming today to the very last segment of our Savior's high priestly prayer in John 17. Four times in the closing verses, Jesus prays, that Christians may be one. By the way, sometimes in a passage of Scripture, all you do is just count up the repetitions, and you see the emphasis. It becomes very, very clear. The unity of the church is so critical that four times Jesus prays for it. Now, the Lord Jesus, in His praying, is also a very masterful teacher. And so he answers two very important questions about church unity. First of all, what is it? What's the nature of our unity as believers? And then secondly, what inspires it? What motivates us to want to be a congregation that has the harmony that the Lord intended? Let's take our Bibles and turn to John 17. And I want to read this portion of Scripture for us before we dig in this morning and answer these questions. John 17, would you look with me now at what Jesus says starting in verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Bow with me for a moment. O gracious Lord, you have told us in your word that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What a tall order that is. For there are so many reasons that we should be divided from one another. Thank you that the unity you prayed for is only and ever the result of your work in sinners such as we are. And today we thank you that you are answering the prayer of Jesus in our very midst. May that continue as we follow your holy will. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's dig in where Jesus does with what is Christian unity. I want you to notice the first thing that Jesus says is that Christian unity is a unity of spiritual relationship. He prays in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. It is a unity of spiritual relationship. Now, right off the bat, this tells us what Christian unity is not. You realize there are a lot of fuzzy ideas about this passage. Let me tell you what unity is not. First of all, it is not institutional unity. Uh, For years, the ecumenical movement has used this passage to say uh, the world's churches need to unite. So let's unite organizationally, no matter what we believe, to fulfill Christ's desire to show the world that we are one. But as we read this passage, there is nothing here about institutions 
getting together to show some sort of external union. By the way, do you know it is possible to have outward unity but not have spiritual unity? You know that's true. And so this idea of institutional unity misses Jesus' point entirely. A second thing this unity is not is it's not uniformity. God is a God of variety. He's a God of creativity. Um, He has made us all different. Just look at us today, how different we are. Uh, None of us uh, thinks alike. We don't look alike. We don't have the same tastes, the same likes. By the way, can you imagine how boring this place would be if that were the case? So uh, we, we understand that this is not a uniformity. You know, every once in a while, uh, people will ask me what Bible translation is used at Bethel. You know what I say? My answer is always the same. We have no official translation at Bethel that everyone must use. There are many faithful translations of the Word of God. In fact, in my Christian life, can you believe I have used six different translations? I started out with the King James. Then I went to the uh, Schofield Bible. I used the New American Standard Bible for a while. I used the New King James Version. I used the New International Version. And now, today, I've been using the English Standard Version. By the way, you know what we ought to do this morning? We ought to have a contest. I ought to go through those translations again, and then you cheer for the one that you use. (laughs) Forcing God's people to use one translation of the Bible is not unity. That's uniformity. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said this, uniformity has everyone looking and thinking alike. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board. And that is not what Jesus prays for. A third thing that unity does not mean is that there will be no disagreement in the Lord's church. Uh, The church actually needs a healthy exchange of ideas for it to be effective. Uh, Do you know sometimes out of disagreement, the very best ideas emerge? And so there is uh, nothing wrong with disagreement in a church. Uh, Disagreement is healthy. You know when disagreement becomes unhealthy? When we become disagreeable. And everyone must always watch that line. Is my disagreement healthy? Or has it caused me to become a disagreeable person. That's the concern that Jesus has here. So if those three things are not uh, what creates the unity in the body of Christ, what is that unity? Well, notice our unity here is a spiritual unity 
patterned after the relationship of the triune God. In verse 21, Jesus says, I want my people to be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. This is the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. Now, here's what the Bible teaches us about the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are taught that they are co-equal, they are co-eternal, and they are consubstantial, which means they all possess the same nature. Now, they are not blended together so that the nature of God is mixed. And they also do not divide the nature of God so that we have three separate gods. That's what Mormonism teaches. Rather, they are all co-eternal, co-equal, co-substantial, all sharing the same divine, possessing the same divine essence so that it is never mixed and they are never divided. Now, you know what Jesus has taught us here in the Upper Room Discourse? All three members of the Trinity indwell every Christian. And because they do, that's what forms us into the family of God. So it is this spiritual relationship with the triune God that we all have that is the basis of our unity. I like what Pastor Stephen Olford said. He said, all who are united in one Holy Spirit are friends of Jesus and therefore are friends of one another. Isn't that good? All who are united in one Holy Spirit are friends of Jesus and are therefore friends of one another. Let me ask a couple questions this morning. Can anyone imagine the Father dividing against the Son? Unthinkable. Can anyone fathom the Holy Spirit not loving the Father? Preposterous. So in the very same way, we should abhor all selfish division within the body of Christ. It goes against our spiritual relationship. Do you remember in the book of Genesis? When Abraham's shepherds began quarreling with his nephew Lot's shepherds, Abraham and Lot were uh, related in two ways. They were physically related by blood as uncle and nephew, but they were spiritually related as well in the land of Canaan as the only true believers in the living God. And when this quarreling began to happen, Abraham, the spiritual leader, said to his nephew, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. You see, Abraham knew it was not right for family to quarrel or to be divided against one another. Notice secondly, secondly, this unity is a unity of biblical 
revelation. It is a unity of biblical revelation. Look what Jesus said in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now what is the glory that God, through Jesus, gave the disciples and us? We have to go all the way back to Genesis 1, and you discover what this glory is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory is primarily seen in the gospel of God's grace in the work of Jesus Christ. And that glory is seen in the truth that explains that gospel in the completed word of God. So, it is the revelation of God's nature in the gospel as revealed in the Bible that is the glory that has been given to us. True unity then is unity in the gospel of God's grace in Jesus and in the truth of God's word that explains that gospel. That is our glory and our unity. Did you know that you can only become a member here at Bethel if you agree with our church doctrine? Probably most of you know that. And if you were to say, why is that the case? Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, we believe that our church doctrine accurately reflects the teaching of the Bible. And since the teaching of the Bible about our Savior and the plan of salvation is the glory that God has given to us, we take that very, very seriously. Number two, our doctrinal statement focuses on major doctrines, not on minor points. And that's one reason why we require all members to believe in that, because it focuses on the essentials of the Word of God and gives liberty in the non-essentials. Uh, you know what that means? If you believe in superlapsarianism instead of infralapsarianism or uh, sublapsarianism, that is okay. That's all right. Uh, how, how, how many of you are relieved to know that? There, there is room for minor differences. Now, by the way, I don't know what those words mean either, but I just like saying them. <laughs> Third, 
We know Satan uses bad doctrine to divide the church and destroy people's lives. We know that's how he works. Uh, Turn to the last chapter of Romans 16. Why is our unity and biblical revelation... Well, look at this. Romans 16, look at verse 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What is this saying? Deception and division can never glorify the God of grace and truth. Instead, it will bring destruction and harm. One of my old professors was Tony Evans. This week I I read this statement from him. Satan knows that whatever he can divide, he can dominate. He knows that far better than we do. And so God says, the revelation of my grace in my Son and my word which explains that, that's your unity. Don't ever give that up. Thirdly, this unity that we have is a unity of gospel witness. Gospel witness. Did you notice three times our witness to the world is at stake in our unity? Uh, Go back and and notice this. Look at verse 20. Uh, Jesus says, I pray for those who are going to believe because of your word. Look at verse 21. He says, I want you to be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, he says, I want them to be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Did you notice here Jesus says, We are to strive for perfect unity. Now we all know that is impossible. The old Bible teacher J.C. Ryle said, Before Christ comes, it is useless to expect to see a perfect church. Though we all understand that, the unity of the body, says Jesus, is so important, we ought to strive for perfect unity anyway. It's sort of like what Vince Lombardi said to his players. We're going to follow after perfection. Notice that we will never get it, but in the process, we will catch excellence. That's what he said to them. 
And now Jesus says to us, we're going to strive after perfect unity, knowing that we'll never catch it, but in the process, we will have a greater unity than we ever could have had. That's what he's saying. Now notice what is at stake. The very credibility of the gospel. Did you see that? The Father, Jesus says here in these verses, sent the Son on a mission of love to save a people to share His love. When that love amongst us breaks down, causing division, the whole message is compromised. Look at what Jesus says. I've loved the Son. The Son has loved them. They love me. If the Father loved the Son and sent the Son to save a people to experience God's love, if those very people bite and devour one another, then what does the world say as they look on in spectacle? Maybe the love of Jesus isn't real after all. The first business meeting that I ever presided over as a pastor ended this way. A deacon got up, came to the microphone, accused our associate pastor of misspending church funds. As soon as he sat down, the head trustee rushed to the front. He said, I'm in charge of the board who approves the funding. If you are accusing him of misspending church money, then you are accusing me. Out in the parking lot, the brother-in-law of the deacon shook his fist at the head trustee and said, My brother-in-law knows what he is talking about. I had never seen anything like this in my life. Was I in a church meeting or a union hall meeting? That underhanded, pernicious lie could have ripped our church up and destroyed our witness. And I need to tell you this. If that had happened as a 29-year-old pastor, I'm not sure I would have survived. Do you want to know why it didn't happen? That associate pastor showed the love of Christ and forgave both men. It was one of the most extraordinary responses of magnanimous Christ-likeness I have ever seen. And what could have destroyed our witness enabled us to go on for the Lord.
You see, that is what is at stake. John Wesley said this, Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? That's the point here. Our gospel witness is at stake. And so when we ask this question, what is Christian unity? Well, Jesus makes it so crystal clear for us. Now, he answers this second question as well. And what should motivate you and me to be united like this? My brother John always asks, what are the takeaways from the message? And this morning, I have three takeaways for you as to what ought to inspire this kind of unity. Here's the first one. Jesus says, we are going to heaven together. We're going to heaven together. Look at verse 24, Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now there's a lot that we could say here about the security of our salvation from this prayer. This is now the second time that Jesus prays that the Father will guard all of his true children so that they will arrive safely in heaven and experience glorification. But the central thought I want us to see here is that Jesus says that we, as he prays, will be in heaven with him. There's a very interesting thing we need to pick up here. When he says, whom you have given me, referring to the plural disciples, the verb given me is in the singular. Now why does Jesus use a singular verb to refer to an entire group? This is a collective singular. What Jesus is saying is we are going to reach heaven together. We are in this thing as a body. Do you know one of the uh, largest causes of division within the church is individualized Christianity? That's one of our biggest problems. It is American rugged individualism that is brought into the church that creates so much of our division. I can do this myself. I don't need anybody else. I know that I'm right. I can always find another church to suit me. But here's what Jesus is saying. If we are going to be in heaven together, should we not try and have as a priority bringing heaven down to our churches? Should we not? You see, if we're all going to, to glory together and we're going to be a part of this family there, then the will of God is that we bring that 
down from heaven here and that we be a part of this family here. We are all going to heaven together. Secondly, Jesus says, we know God's plan, but the world doesn't know the plan. We ought to be sharper. We ought to be wiser. We ought to get what's going on. Let me read for you verse 25 in the first part of verse 26. Count how many times the word no occurs. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. How many times? Five times. We know the plan of God. And we know how the name of God is at stake. And we know that the unity of the body is crucial for the effectiveness of that plan. Because Jesus said, it is ultimately about our gospel witness. This week I came across an excellent summary of God's plan. I, I couldn't put it together any, any clearer than this. So, let me, just, let me just give it to you. God has a mission. Let's look at it. Sin and Satan hold people in bondage and bring suffering, evil, and death. God is gathering together a people who through faith in Jesus Christ are set free from sin and Satan and are committed to Him. God sends them into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to share God's love and bring people back to Himself and one day this gospel in this Savior will bring about the redemption of even the physical creation. Everyone here knows the plan, don't we? Now that plan revealed in this word is our glory. It is what brings the greatest glory to God. Therefore, what is Jesus saying? It must never, ever be diminished for selfish strife. How those people in that first meeting I presided over needed to understand this. God's plan revealed in His Word, which is our glory, must never be diminished. For selfish strife. Look at the final motive. We love with Jesus indwelling love. What does he say at the end of the verse? I've revealed this to them, I've come to live in them, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So what Jesus is saying is we have been invaded 
by the supernatural love of Christ. By the way, count the word love in this final section of the prayer five times. Five times. So four times that they may be one. Five times they know the plan. Five times they are indwelt by the supernatural love of Christ. Remember what Jesus said about himself? He was meek and lowly. As far as I know, in terms of describing his own human personality, the only time Jesus ever referred to his own personality, he said he was meek and lowly. So let me ask us some questions. If Jesus was meek and lowly and he has indwelt us with his love, shouldn't we be more forbearing like he was? Shouldn't we be more forgiving like he was? Should not we be more patient like he was? Shouldn't we be more willing to take second place like he did? More willing even to lose? More willing to hold his tongue when he was the only one who ever had the right to speak his mind? More willing not to judge the motives of others? I think we all know the answer. Probably my favorite pastor that I ever sat under was Warren Wiersbe. When I was a student in Chicago, I went to Moody Church, he pastored there. Never heard anyone ever preach like him. Listen to how he put this whole passage together. Listen to his words. There's every reason why believers should love one another and live in unity. We trust the same Savior and share the same glory. We will one day enjoy the same heaven. We belong to the same Father and seek to do the same work, witnessing to a lost world that Jesus Christ alone saves from sin. We believe the same truth, even though we may have different views of minor doctrinal matters, and we follow the same example that Jesus set for His people to live a holy life. Yes, believers do have their differences, but we have much more in common, and this should encourage us to love one another and promote true spiritual unity. And all God's people said, absolutely, absolutely. Don't ever forget what is unity. It's a spiritual relationship. It's around biblical revelation. And it is for gospel witness. And then what, is, what does the Lord do to motivate us to this? Well, He reminds us. We're all in this together. We're not a bunch of individual Christians, but we're going to have it eternity together with one another. 
We know this plan which is our glory, and none of us wants to diminish the glory of God. And we have the indwelling love of the Savior who said about himself, Come to me. I'm meek and lowly. And therefore, in relationships with each other, we should be the same. How blessed we are.